As all of you are aware, we've had some really terrible times in Louisville and, and across our country of late. And it was just over a week ago that I was, it was 3.04 in the afternoon and I was driving towards Kroger here on Hurstbourne to uh, buy some food for the evening when my wife texted me and said there's been a shooting at Kroger. So I was three minutes away from the event itself. It's, it's that close to home. And um, I'm sure you're all familiar with the details at this point, but it appears that a white man came in and it, by all accounts, this was a hate crime where he was targeting black people. He tried, to, he tried to get into a black church here in town just minutes before he went to Kroger and started picking off black people. And uh, I, I tend to stay out of whatever the current thing is. Uh, there's, there's always something on Facebook, there's always something on Twitter, something on social media that is the current thing everybody's talking about. And I, I tend to move away from those things and try to focus on big picture topics and, and uh, trying to change the human heart and things like that instead of diving into what is so eminently uh, focused in our minds. But this week, it didn't, it didn't feel right to ignore a shooting that, that literally could happen in a, a parking lot. You could throw a rock from where we're sitting right now and almost hit where this thing happened, literally. A, a really strong person might come really close. And it, it's, 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 it's close to home. Uh, I've, I've been in touch with the... So, so Maurice Stollard was the first person killed, and he was at Kroger with his grandson, who I understand was 10 years old, maybe 12. I'm, I'm not sure about the numbers exactly, but a young boy. And uh, he was the first one gunned down. And I've been in touch with his grandson's father this week, just communicating with him briefly and then uh, reading his Facebook page and, and trying to establish a relationship online. And this is what he wrote of Mr. Stollard. He said, Mr. Stollard to me was more than my son's grandfather. I admired, emulated, and respected his character. He was a man that showed you through action what he was about. And that was family first. And I love this line. He never missed a game of any of his grandchildren. He accepted me even when my relationship with his daughter ended. He loved his first grandchild more than anything in the world. And he died protecting him. Apparently from the stories, and, and you know, who, who knows, but this seems to be reported from various sources that there was a, an, an armed white person there, that there was a bit of a standoff between him and the shooter, and, and the shooter told the white person that whites don't kill whites. So after, after trying to break into a predominantly black church, he comes and shoots down two black people and then says whites don't shoot whites, and, and it, 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 appear, it appears to be racially motivated. The second lady that was killed in the parking lot was Vicki Lee Jones. And these are some of the quotes online about her. It says, she was a beautiful spirit, kind soul, God-fearing woman. She's the lady on the right. Vicki loved everyone, and everyone loved her. And I, I like this quote. It said, always had candy in her purse. I don't know if it was to tell people, you know, here, suck on this, or if it was, you need some help with your breath right now. <laughs> and I think, I think whoever her friend was that felt comfortable saying this did a lot to describe her character in, in just that brief kind of, kind of funny quote. And then... Like a day, maybe two days after the shooting, of course, we've heard about the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh where a large collection of Jewish people were gunned down by a person who was clearly racially motivated and an anti-Semite. And uh, these are the people that lost their lives that day. And it's easy to look at the news broadcasts and say, oh, more people dead, and kind of gloss over it. But I keep looking, I'm gonna try not to cry today, but I keep looking at this picture and thinking, one person with one gun doesn't kill all these people instantly. There, it, was a, it was a horrific, nightmarish scene in that synagogue where some people knew death was coming. It's, 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 it's like, uh, what's the movie with Liam Neeson? Schindler's List. 
there's a scene, there's a scene where, where the, the Nazi goes down and shoots Jewish people in the head, and then the, his gun is out of ammo, so he has to wait and load while the, while the Jewish person waits. That was the kind of nightmarish scene that was going on in our country just over a week ago. And there's been some rumors that this lady, the 97-year-old uh, Rose Malinger, was uh, a Jewish Holocaust survivor. Those have proven to be false. She was not. However, in the parking lot, this man pulled up right, right almost immediately after the shooting occurred. And he was a Holocaust survivor. And he showed up four minutes late. And was, he was four minutes late to church that day, basically, to synagogue that day, and was not a part of the shooting. And Forward.com describes his life like this. It says, it took Samet 60 seconds to process what the man was saying. So he pulls up in his car. He's getting ready to get out. And somebody comes running up saying, don't go in. There's a shooter. There's a shooter. And it, sa it says he sat there in his car trying to figure out what in the world was going on because it just seemed so far away. And he was born in Hungary. He turned eight years old at the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in Germany. He spent five and a half years in an orphanage in Israel, meaning his parents probably were lost in the Holocaust. He's been a member of Tree of Life Congregation for 55 years, and when he heard about what was going on, this was his response. He says, my God, my story doesn't end. I mean, you would think having survived the concentration camps, having survived the death of your parents, moved into an orphanage, that the Holocaust would be behind you, but it's not. It still exists. And I, I, I don't think I'm going to do this as a long series right now. This is a one-off sermon where we, maybe we'll come back to what a lousy world we live in in some sense. We live in a very messed up world. There's a lot messed up going on. And I have a, a, a confession to make that's very difficult for me to make. But I feel like I should say it because there's a point to it. I was on my way to Kroger that day, and I found out about the shooting. So, and I was on, I was on my way to Kroger and Home Depot, which, as you all know, are within you know, 300 yards of this location right here right now. And I was planning on getting food and buying some stuff for my house. And so I detoured into Home Depot when, when Kara said that there's been a shooting. And then you get up here, and there's, there's roadblocks everywhere. There's cops everywhere. There's, there's, the traffic is just backed up forever. And I went ahead and shopped at Home Depot, and I remember not feeling much at all. Uh, it's, it's embarrassing to me now, and I've had, I've had moments of, of sorrow since then. So embarrassing. I felt inconvenienced. That's, that's how calloused and hard I've, I've become. I heard the helicopters overhead. I knew somebody had been shot. I didn't know the, the details of it. But it took me, the trip took a lot longer than it should have to stop by Kroger, to stop by Home Depot because of all the traffic and the roadblocks and stuff. And I remember calling my wife saying, I'm going to be a little bit late getting home and feeling this inconvenience, but no sorrow, no, no fear. I remember when the Heath High School shootings happened, Michael, Michael Carneal, I grew up in church with the killer. So my Lutheran church in Kentucky, in Paducah, Kentucky, the killer was, the last time I saw him, he was a little boy about this big, Michael Carneal. And I remember for days sitting riveted in front of the television set because it was the first high school shooting and it was just so far off our radars. Now, it's literally across the street from me and my heart is so hard and so calloused that I'm thinking about my inconvenience because of the shootings. It's an embarrassing fact, but it's a reality. And when, when something like this happens, and, 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 and I'm talking about this today because I don't want us to stay in that place. I don't know where you're at on it. Some of you have softer hearts than I do, maybe. Some, maybe if, you, if you read the news, there have been several shootings since these shootings, and they don't even get reported anymore. It's like the Wild West in our country in some sense, and we don't even hear about it, and we don't even honestly really care. 
it's old news at this point. And when something like this happens, first thing is everybody wants to talk about gun control, and that's not what I'm going to focus on today, and I'm not going to focus on it for a couple reasons. Is One, I'm unstudied. I, if I'm going to talk about something as hot topic as gun control and I'm going to talk about those issues, I want to, I want to know my stuff. I want to do my homework on it. And it's just not an area that I've investigated, invested a ton of time. And so I would feel inadequate to talk about the issue. And then secondly, it's just a confusing issue. And I wrote this down quickly this week. It seemed, so there's this armed citizen that apparently drove the shooter away at Kroger. And four minutes later, the cops had him. So the cops did a great job in this situation. But apparently an armed citizen had something to do with the guy jumping in his car and fleeing. So there's that. But then there's also the issue of this guy should have never had a gun in the first place because of his, his, his mental illness issues that he's had in the past, and he's had guns taken away from him. So there's both sides of the coin going on just in the Kroger parking lot, just right across, right across from where we're at right now. And I, I, I said, I don't know how it would be best implemented to get the guns out of the hands of people that don't need guns and certainly shouldn't have guns. And I also believe the kingdom of God is a kingdom of nonviolence. And then I also believe that we live in a world where the kingdom of God isn't fully realized. And there's sometimes, there's often times that I carry, I, I have a concealed carry license and sometimes I carry and sometimes I don't. And, and in some sense, I'm afraid to study pacifism in the Bible because I'm afraid that I'm going to end up fully pacifist. And for some reason, I really don't want to end up there. And so I'm, I'm just saying the whole topic is very confusing. Now, I will say with that, I feel like everyone on all sides of the fence ought to admit the topic is confusing. So many people say it's this way, this way, this way. This is what ought to be done. I think there ought to be more meat in the middle. Let's talk this stuff through instead of you're the bad guy, I'm the bad guy, and finding no middle ground. I think there ought to be some places that we can talk about stuff that makes sense. I'm not going to talk about mental illness today. Mental illness is, is oftentimes the scapegoat for, for white on black crime. It is. Uh, I'm not going to talk about... <sighs> This person in particular and their mental illness, one, I'm unstudied. I'm not a specialist in this. Two, I, I suspect in mental, mental health issues that hateful ideas are easier to implant where mental health issues are occurring. So if you have somebody with mental health issues and somebody tries to make them hate a, a people group, it probably takes a little bit easier. So, so there's, even when we're talking about hate crimes and mental health, there's probably a combination that occurs, but I don't want to get past the reality that some people are of sound mind and still filled with hate. And that's the narrative you don't hear very often. But I, again, I'm not an expert on, on psychology or psychiatry. And today I'm going to talk basically about the race issue. And I consider myself woke-ish. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the phrase woke, but I'm woke-ish because I've studied, I've read, I've talked, I've listened, I've, I've tried to understand, I've tried to wrap my head around it. I've tried not to exist in a camp when I'm listening. But I also recognize that I'm not black, I'm not Jewish, I'm not Asian American. I'm, I, I, I will never totally get, it, get what it means to be in another person's colored skin. I'll, I'll never get it. I also recognize that there are race issues that go beyond black and white, and black and white is the area that I feel most comfortable talking about. It's the area that I've read the most that I'm the wokest about. But it, 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 and I'm also so completely aware of white savior complex and that I'm a white person talking to a predominantly white audience. And, and sometimes people will raise their fist and cheer and give a standing ovation to a white guy that gets up and talks about these issues. And we don't deserve that. The focus, it, it's, it's kind of a shame how this has all worked out where the focus has to be on me and my walk when me and my walk isn't where the real issue is or where the real facts should come out except that I'm the pastor 
and I'm the guy that you guys check in to listen to here and there. And so I want to do what I can do, but I also want to be completely honest that there's no white savior thing that I, I hope that goes on here. Um, it's unfortunate that that's kind of the reality we live in, but I want to talk specifically about the issue of racism versus prejudice today. And I also know I, I, I have not studied anti-Semitism. I don't understand the issues of Native Americans very well, even though I've studied a little bit further on that topic. I don't understand what Asian people go through in America, I, I, what it feels like to be stereotyped. Uh, so a lot of people are going to be disappointed in the message today because it's, it's, it's going to be so focused. But I'm going to focus a little bit on black and, wh black and white people and prejudice and racism, uh, mostly because in our parking lot, a white man shot gunned down two black people and tried to kill a bunch of more black, black people just recently. So that's where we're going to stick. Let's talk about racism first, because I think it's so important in this dialogue and in this conversation that we, we talk about the difference between racism and prejudice. And so often, they get lumped together. A person who is prejudiced is so often labeled as racist, and a person who is racist is so... I, don't, I honestly don't actually believe people are racist, because I believe race, racism is a systematic thing. It's a system-wide thing. So I, don't, I think it's hard to label a person as racist, because... Well, I'm not going to get it. So, so okay. Here we go. Some of this will make sense in a little bit, and I'm still trying to, trying to sort my brain. In 1619, the first boat arrived in, in America with 20 black slaves on board. 1619. Who can do really good math really quick? How many years ago was that? 399. Very good. 400 years ago, this system started where black people were property, 400 years. It continued as slavery for 250 more years. I read in this article from The Atlantic on the case for reparations, and if you really want to get into race theory and where the church needs to be thinking, just, just Google the word reparation in the church and start reading, start listening, and start thinking. But The Atlantic talks about this. This is how it worked. For 250 years of slavery, 90 years of Jim Crow, 60 years of separate but equal. It's just a shame that separate but equal ever existed, that equal even ever had to be said. 55 years of racist housing policy. Until we reckon, this is so important, until we reckon with our compounding moral debts, America will never be whole. Racism is a system-wide issue of hegemony where the powerful diminish and demean those without power. So 20 black slaves arrive in a country where they get nothing. They get unpaid labor. They probably are poor, given poor food. They weren't educated. They were forced, it was forced illiteracy because there was no education for them. Duke Kwan, who was at Q last year, I really recommend going to Q. You get so much out of it. But he said this. He said, the descendants of African slaves who, after being kidnapped, were forced into labor without pay, and even when emancipated, were sent off Penniless. That's such an important point. You've got, you got to see that point. So even when the black man was emancipated, or the black woman was emancipated, given their freedom, they started with nothing. Everything had been taken from them. And then freedom wasn't really freedom because freedom just went into Jim Crow laws, housing issues, and so forth, separate but equal. So that they, Emancipation didn't occur for a long, long time, if even still. That's something to think about. But when they were freed, they were given nothing. It's so important when we have this conversation that that's recognized. 
leaving generation, and this is why, as Duke Kwan says, he says, this left generation after generation in a state of economic disadvantage and deprivation. And then he goes on to talk about the church's responsibility when it comes to reparation and race. He says, it's argued that Christian churches aided and abetted. This is, this is painful truth, people. It has been argued that Christian churches aided and abetted the exploitation of black people around the world. And of course, these claims are true. This is not a black man saying this. This is a Korean man saying this. He says, for generations, the Bible and its superlative authority, which we believe in, we agree with, was used to create the theological grounds for the institution of slavery, for the myth of the inherent inferiority of black personhood, and for the subjugation of black dignity. Now, I see, I see several sides on this. I see several angles on this because uh, this is true, that in, in the beginning of American slavery, and you have to differentiate American slavery from European slavery, from Arabic slavery, from slavery in the Middle Ages. It's, they, they all look different. But when it comes to American slavery, the church and the Bible were a huge driving force under its reality. And that's, a, that's something we need to face off with, that that's the truth. It's also true that the Bible and Christians were some of the people fighting slavery the most. So again, this is a complicated issue, but we have to look back and say that the Bible was used to enslave people. So when we're talking about racism, we're not talking about I don't like you because you're Mexican, or I don't like you because you're white, or I don't like you because you're a woman or you're a man or whatever. That's not what we're talking about at all. We're talking about a system that overarches everything that keeps a minority down. That's what we're talking about. And slavery inherently did that. Even when freed, they were penniless, uneducated, illiterate, without means. And so the only hope, especially in the South, was to become a sharecropper, which was barely any different from being a slave. And I've read articles recently about sharecroppers, and even when they would start to build their own kingdom, whites could just come in and take it, and did often. And because they were illiterate, uneducated, had no finances, didn't know any lawyers, they were powerless to resist. And that occurred for years and years and years. And we, we would be absolutely ridiculous to think that the tidal wave of that racist hegemonic system is gone. To think that after 100, uh, we want to say racism has ended. No, it hasn't. Prejudice still continues. It happened in our parking lot just this week. Racism, the ripple effect from racism, continues on. But let's talk about prejudice for a second. These are some of the propaganda posters from Nazi Germany. And this was, this was a, a, a poster in Poland that was trying to demean Jewish people. And this in Polish basically says, Jews getting their, getting their paws on us? No, never is what this says. And you'll notice, what does is, what is the Jewish person in this picture look like? Uh-huh. Does that kind of look like a pentagram there? Is there fire and burning? Is this, I mean, is this not clearly saying Jewish people are the devil? It's not saying it, but it's saying it, right? This, this is prejudice. And do you see, this is a, this is a different thing than the, the overarching systemic issue of racism. Prejudice is a little bit different, but we'll, we'll talk about how they tie in a second. To be prejudiced is to be prejudicious. It means you're going to judge someone based on something you've already determined is bad or un unhealthy or stupid or ugly or whatever. Prejudice is a prejudgment based on stuff that you already think. Dehumanization is something. So that's what's happening in here. This, is, this poster is dehumanizing the Jewish person, trying to make them devilish 
or demonic. And dehumanization is, a, is part of the prejudice process. And then to demean, these are words we don't think about too much, but to demean is to make less than the mean. The mean is the average. The mean is normal. So when you demean someone, you're trying to bring them below the average. This is what happens if, if you go to the Vietnam conf conflict. They had special names for the Vietnam soldiers because they wanted to dehumanize and demean them. Racial, racial slurs are always dehumanizing and demeaning, right? When you hear a racial slur, that's what it's trying to do, is trying to bring someone down in order to prejudge them. These are actual campaign posters from elections in our history. Now, which of the pictures does not look human? It's a black man, right? Do you see that? Just drawing a picture is dehumanizing. It's demeaning. It's demeaning. It's bringing someone down. And, and, and prejudice still exists today. It, it, refugees in Darfur recently have been quoted as to some of the things that have been said to them. Things like, and that's hard to read on this screen. I apologize for that. Darfurian refugees, Nuba dog. They're called sons of dogs. Donkeys, slaves. We must get rid of you. You blacks are like monkeys. You are not human. We want to think that this stuff is out of, the, out of our world today and kind of close our eyes to it, but it's not gone. And it's not just America. It's all over the world that this dehumanization happens. There's this article I, I recommend you, you look up and read. It's called Dehumanization is a Distinct Form of Prejudice. Dehumanization denies full humanness to others. And while this denial might sound extreme, and some research suggests it can predict extreme violence towards outgroups, so dehumanization is a predictor of violence, right? So prejudice predicts violence. Emerging evidence suggests that dehumanization is also, listen to this, an everyday social phenomenon and not simply an extreme form of prejudice. We have a tendency to look at those that we demean in our minds as less than human. All of us do it, is, is what the evidence seems to indicate, is that all of us have these prejudices. And this is my goal today, is that we will confront it in ourselves. Because here's what happens. Prejudice predicates racism. So when the, when the first slaves came to America in 1619, do you see that that was a prejudicial act? It was, we viewed the black man and the black woman as savages, worthy of taking as property, right? There was a prejudice there. And that started a system of racism. So the prejudice was the beginning, and the racism developed from that. And here's what happens. So this sharecropper, that was t all his stuff was taken, and he was illiterate and uneducated and had no money, well, we tend to look at not just color when it comes to people. When we, when we determine who we're going to be prejudiced against, we look at things like illiteracy. We automatically demean the illiterate. We automatically demean the uneducated. We automatically demean the poor. So this prejudice caused a racist system which reinforced prejudice, which reinforces racism, which reinforces prejudice, and it's this chain that's never-ending. And I want to talk about where do we break this chain? Where, we have come a long way, and, and I think you'll see a quote in just a minute about that. We really have come a long way, but how do we keep going? And part of it is to break that cycle. And how do we break the cycle of prejudice turns racist, turns prejudice, turns racist? And the first part was prejudice. The first, it began with prejudice. And when you want to break a chain, where do you start? You start on the weakest link. Now, you as an individual... I mean, isn't that, isn't that kind of where we're at when we hear about these things? We think, how can I help? Well, some people don't. Some people don't care, and that's a good place to start. But for, for the average thinking, thoughtful person, we think, how can I help? Can you break down 
an overarching global system? I mean, is that, is that within your power to do so? Probably not. But can you break down the link to that system that feeds the system? Absolutely. And how do you do that? You do it by focusing on prejudice. You do it by focusing on your own prejudices and trying to diminish and help with the prejudices of others. And over time, that's a part of breaking down the system. So I'm going to ask you to put pressure on your own prejudices. I'm going to ask you to seriously examine yourself and find out where they are and root that thing out. And as individuals, imagine all the people in this room, if we had a serious transformation when it comes to our prejudices, the power that's behind that. There's this scientific study or, or sociological study that's been done on race and racial prejudice, and they say explicit racial prejudice has abated significantly in the past, in the, I'm sorry, in the past half century, while racial disparities in outcomes persist. So what this is saying is prejudice is diminishing. That's, that's why so many people say, well, racism is gone. Racism isn't around today. It's because prejudice is diminishing. It, 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 none of us are going to put those, po those campaign posters up in our bedrooms at this point. Prejudice has diminished, but the system that was built on prejudice hasn't. And the, and the last thing we need is more prejudice feeding that system. We want to examine our own prejudices, challenge pre prejudice when we see it. It's important to look at Scripture and, and look at God and look at Jesus and see. And what you see in, in Scripture, again, and there's a difference between American slavery and the types of slavery that you see described in Scripture and even, even other parts of the world. Slavery is not always the same globally or historically. But in Scripture, there's this trend that occurs where it feels like and it seems like God is trying to get people to lay down the concept of owning another. It's, it, it, if, you, if you read it throughout, there's, there's this underarching idea that God is getting away from this ideal. And even in ancient days, so we're talking ancient, ancient days, the earliest days of time when people held slaves, this is the kind of stuff God commanded. said, if any of your people, Hebrew men or women, so your people, the Hebrews, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. So if, if you take a slave, you can, only, you can only use them as an indentured servant for six years, then you must let them go free. But notice what it says. It, it avoids the racist system here. God is so brilliant. He says, when you release them, do not send them empty-handed. Wow! They won't be penniless. They won't be uneducated. They won't be illiterate. When you release them, make sure they're well taken care of. It says, supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press, your animals, your food, and your wine. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. In other words, in abundance. And then it says this. It says, remember that you were slaves, and the Lord your God redeemed you. And that is why I give this command to you today. Now, that's, it says that about Hebrew people. So if you take one of your own and become a slave. But later, it talks about strangers and foreigners in your midst. And it says this. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native. Same rules apply. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And once again, there's this reminder from God that says, you could be slaves. There's nothing special about you. It, 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 in fact, he's saying to the Hebrews, it did happen to you. Don't forget that. See, a lot of times because we live in a safe place, we think that we're above and beyond slavery, and so we, we, try to, we try to diminish those who have been slaves. God says, don't do that in your head. He says, don't do that. 
It could be you just as easily. And what's the rule? He says you treat foreigners and natives the same. And you make sure they're well provided for so this system of overarching hegemony and overarching lordship never occurs. From the beginning of time, when God was establishing his laws, that's the kind of stuff he tried to establish. So where do we go from here? I label this as an almost laughable AAA attempt to answer the question, where do we go from here? I say almost laughable because, honestly, no matter how much I study, no matter how much I think, no matter how much I listen, I still feel so inadequate. It's just so much bigger than me. And that's, that's why I'm thankful that Jesus is one day going to part the clouds and make everything right. That's going to happen. And he's promised that's going to happen. But in the meantime, it's thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what do we do in the meantime? We try to make this place like that. We try to make this place like heaven. And how do we do it? Uh, and, and race theorists and, and sociologists a lot of times talk about these three A's in some sense. I've kind of tailored them a little bit, and I'm only going to really hit on one of them today. But the first is, is um, to be aware, is to listen, is to not see things only through your lens, but to listen to what other people have to say about their experiences. The next is to become an ally, and it means to stand next to someone who is your brother and sister. And you don't even necessarily have to think the same or view the world the same, but you stand with them as human beings. And then finally is to become an advocate. An advocate is someone who fights for someone else. But today I want to focus on awareness because I think, I think awareness is the, is the beginning of breaking down prejudice, and breaking down prejudice is the beginning of breaking down this chain of racism and the societal issues that we have. So here's what I want to encourage you on in, in, the, in the first of the three A's, and that's the only one I'm going to tend to deal with today, is awareness. And I want to encourage you to start a dangerous and a complicated journey. It's going to feel dangerous to step out and say, tell me about a life I don't understand to another person that lives completely different than you. It's going to feel dangerous to step into situations where you feel like the foreigner. Nobody wants to feel that way. So it's a little bit dangerous, but it's also complicated in that no two people of any color are going to think the same way. And that's something really dangerous about this journey is you think because you have a black friend and that black friend or that Native American friend or that Asian friend or that white friend, you think, you think because you know them that you get all black people or all white people or all Asian people, and that's never going to be the truth. It's complicated. The issue is complicated. Which we'll, Actually, I'll touch on that right now. Um, when it comes to awareness and listening, so it's being aware. Galatians tells us to share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. It's picking up one another's burdens. So here's an example of how it's complicated, okay? This was posted by a friend of mine a day or two after the shooting at Kroger. And she said, why does it have to feel like my skin color is a crime? Another strike against me. How do I teach my children to hold their heads up, to continue to be proud of who they are, of their chocolate skin, when so many are ready to hurt them just because of it? I don't know. I have to think about what my parents went through and what their parents went through, and still they remain strong. I have to hold on to my faith rather than think of how to build my own arsenal, looking for a way to strap up. I have to listen to my husband who says the people who hate and kill us are in the minority and not the majority, but it still hurts. I'm thankful that minority people haven't decided to burn the world to the ground, and they could. I'm, th- You know, I... I can get myself in trouble because I talk off the cuff up here, but I'm still thankful that I don't worry about me and my son walking into Kroger. 
And do you know why that is? It's because some people are peace-loving that we try to demean. Now, I see the other side of the aisle. If I'm a black person and I see a preacher put this up on the screen and I see a preacher talk about the peace-loving Jesus and peacemakers and stuff, there's going to be a sense in me that that's just the white guy trying to bring me down. I'm thinking, I'm thinking it's, 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 it's all the same. They're just using the Bible now to keep me from fighting for my rights. It's just complicated. And to show how complicated it is, so this, is the, this was the reaction of one of my friends following the shooting. But I also read this online. A white person, white savior, steps up and says, the anxiety and depression I would have today if I had been born a black male in this country, I know I couldn't survive it. There's absolutely nothing to justify the blatant oppression they experience every single day. Nothing. And it's pretty interesting, this black guy responds to her. She, he says, I was born a black male in this country. I live in a very white state. I don't have anxiety, and I don't have depression from it. You know what happens when I go out in my yard in the suburbs and wave at the neighbors while doing yard work? They wave back. And one of, one of my friends this week said that this is indicative of the fact that something that we're doing is working, that there are pockets where prejudice is breaking down and where racism is starting to diminish. But, but do you see that this is two black people expressing their feelings, and they're almost polar opposite? It just illustrates that this is complicated. So, so I'm saying don't go into this journey thinking you're going to get easy answers because you're not. But be willing to take the journey in order to become an ally, in order to stand side by side with your brothers and sisters that are hurting, that are in pain. So, so this second person that we're talking about here doesn't deal with the anxiety and the stress that the first person experienced, but the second person now has to deal with how white people are trying to fix something that he doesn't even think is broken. The system is still jacked up. The system still has issues. When we listen, we start to feel the complication. We start to feel the difficulties. Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird says, if you just learn a single trick, Scout, you'll get along a lot better with all kinds of folks. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, and that's what I'm asking us to do. I'm asking us to always use that as a kind of a foundational function of our lives, is considering how other people feel and think. He says you should climb inside of his skin and walk around in it. I read this this week, that to relate to another person in a deep and personal way, this is the end of prejudice. I've heard it said that the easiest way to break down racism, racism in my opinion is misused in this sentence, but the easiest way to avoid racism is to become well-traveled. In other words, if you spend time with people different than you, if you spend time with people who don't think the way you think, who look different than you, you're going to start to see them as human the dehumanization process diminishes and the humanization process comes in. And it all comes down to time. Darren Brown has a special on Netflix called Sacrifice. I'm going to play a quick clip. I'm going to go about five minutes long today, maybe 20 minutes long. Just get over yourself. <laughs> but Darren Brown has this, this show called Sacrifice where he takes a person who is openly prejudiced. They, I think they use the word racist, but he's openly prejudiced against immigrants and Mexican people. He thinks, he thinks the Mexicans are here to take all of our jobs. And he has this negative view of Latino and Mexican people. And Darren Brown is trying to shape the way he thinks and doing some tests and some psychological studies. And one of them that he does here, after the man has had a few breakthroughs, I thought was pretty, pretty interesting. So here goes. So this was one person sitting, just, just 
he, he had just recently found out that his DNA test had come back and that 1% of his DNA came from Mexico and Peru, which was a real shocker to a guy who thought he was from, he thought he was from in England and America, which I thought was a really hilarious thing to say that my ancestors were American because I'm white. It's just, woohoo, hello. But he just sat across from a guy and saw him as human. It, just being in literal close proximity ended that dehumanization process and increased the humanization process. And this is, if, if I can encourage you in any area, whatever, wherever your prejudices are, it starts with connecting with others. It says in the book of Genesis that God created mankind in his own image. It says, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's a song I've been listening to uh, by Will Rutherford called Human, and it says, um, we are bound to one another we can, we can only be human only together. And it's, it's based on this quote from Desmond Tutu. It says, my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. And in it, it says, we are bound to one another. But I kept hearing it as we bow down to one another. And I really wanted to use it as a quote to emphasize that fact, and I can't because I was inaccurate with the lyrics. But it's this idea that every human being, if you look around the room, every person of every color and every creed and every financial situation and every language was created in the image of God. And this idea of we will bow down to one another isn't too far off. It means I see God in you. No matter where you're from, no matter your educational status, no matter who you are, God is in you. And if we start to see that in people, it changes us. James asked, who are you to judge your neighbor? And when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, one of them, it was, it was in response to a religious leader saying, yeah, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but who are we talking about here, Jesus? I mean, we're not talking about those guys, right? And what Jesus' response was basically, I'll tell you who your neighbor is. Your neighbor is the person you've despised. Your neighbor is the person you're prejudiced against. Your neighbor is the person that you've hated. And so if I have anything today, I want to I ask you and ask me, where are our prejudices? And we want to we say, oh, man, I'm, I'm past all that. I don't, I don't have prejudices. But let's just talk about categories for a second. How about homeless people? Do you humanize them when you see them or do you dehumanize them when you see them? Whether they're Latino people or Arabic people, Asian people. What about rich people? I mean, do you maybe in some sense have a prejudice against rich people or, or poor people? Maybe you have a prejudice against doctors or lawyers. Maybe you have a prejudice against farmers. I mean, I don't, I don't know where they are. I don't, I don't even know where they are in me. I can't possibly come up with an, a list that everybody will relate to today. I, I can't even figure it out for myself. But this is a work that we need God to do in us. It's a work of examining our prejudices. Who are the people that we demean, that we look down on? Muslims? Gay people? Partiers? Who? Who are the people that, that in your mind are diminished from the mean and that you don't see the image of God in them? This is a miracle I believe God wants to do in our lives and we should ask him to do it. And so I'm saying, seriously, ask God. Like, take some time this week and say, who are the people? And you know what that means? If you're going to do this awareness ally advocate thing, that means you're going to have to start connecting with some of those people that you don't want to connect with people with mental health issues, people that are needy and clingy, people who are overweight, people who are really, really skinny. I mean, who are the, who are the people? 
And I guarantee if you get to know them, a humanization process will happen and that prejudice will be diminished. I sat down to lunch with my friend Quan Founder this week and he said it this way. He said, it may not be something that changes immediately. It takes laying down bricks to build a wall and sometimes it takes time to break walls down. This is not, this is not a one-sermon thing. I have no delusions of grandeur that this sermon is going to revolutionize society, but I hope it revolutionizes me and I hope it revolutionizes you that you'll look and say, where are my prejudices? And I believe there's a spiritual foundation that will be torn down. And when it's torn down in you, it's torn down in the next guy and torn down in the next guy. And those chains start to break and the system comes down.